so here we go. I'm April, and this is my first venture into creating a show of any kind. And I'll be the first to tell you I'm a massive nerd with no accolades to hold to my name. I've over half a dozen written novels and more ideas than I know what to do with. And maybe this is another half-cocked idea that I'll start and give up on in time. But there's something to James S.A. Corey's Expanse book and show series that has held my attention for years now. And that something is in the greater details that I'm hoping to explore in this show. My goal is to go through the more minute details of the Expanse book and show series in tandem, point out some of the changes and some of the nifty details that were overlooked or are subtly placed within the show as it corresponds to the books. I may miss some things, so please point them out. Just be nice about it. I'm not perfect, and mistakes are great talking points that I won't mind correcting at all. This may go without saying, there will be spoilers. I will do my best to contain those spoilers to the content I'm talking about, but when I cannot, I'll scream spoiler alert or something. Honestly though, if you're that worried about spoilers, bookmark this show, go read the books, go watch the show, and come back to me. And if you really want a spoiler-free show, I also suggest listening and subscribing to Ty and That Guy. It is the quintessential Expanse podcast hosted by half of the writing team that makes up James S.A. Corey, author of the Expanse novels, Ty Frank, and the actor that portrays Amos Burton in the Expanse show, Wes Chatham, who does seem like a sweet baby angel with pinchable cheeks. Can I pinch those cheeks, Wes? The ones on your face, just your face. As I'm totally one of their five fans, I think they're up to five now, though Wes mentioned something in the last episode um, about an army when he wants to get us excited and a family when he wants to be warm and fuzzy with us. Um, but I'm one of the five. Um, there's a lot that they talk about that becomes relevant. And obviously it becomes relevant because they're the actual experts and I'm that fifth fan. So with that, let's dig in. Uh, today I'm going to be talking about book one, Leviathan Wakes, chapters one through five, which correspond with season one, episode one, Dulcinea, and are most obviously deep dive facts. I'm going to guess we all have an idea of what a Leviathan is. The monster of the unknown is lurking deep within the shadows. So even in the title of the book, we have some intense foreshadowing into what we're about to experience, which would make the title for the first episode worth of a little bit of a head scratch. Dulcinea is an intense title, as it's less a title for the episode, and like the title for the novels, it sets the tone for the entire series and what's to come with one particular storyline. The episode itself took the name from the imagined lover of Don Quixote in Miguel Cervantes' classic novel, Don Quixote. In his wild tales, you know, in his wild tales, he imagines this woman who must be worthy of his chivalrous efforts. Don Quixote creates this idea of royal female perfection who is, in reality, a down-to-earth woman. Um, if you think of it like this, the Dulcinea is a celebrity crush whom Don Quixote tells everyone is his reality. He's married to Monica Bellucci. And in reality, he goes home to the sassy, realistically attractive barista he gets his coffee from every day. So we'll go with our cat Dennings. Now, you may ask, who is our Dulcinea in the Expanse? 
That first episode introduces you to her real quick. And that's where we'll begin, as it's where both the book and the show begin. Juliet Andromeda Mal is imprisoned on the Scopuli. Now, before I go into Julie Mao's imprisonment, I want to point out the name of the ship she's trapped on, the Scopuli, because it's important foreshadowing and totally worth a nerd dive. The word Scopuli is the plural form of Scopulis, which in terms of planetary geology is a steep slope that results from earthquakes and erosions. So when we take a look at the sociopolitical landscape of our, yes, our solar system, did you know that's, that that's the actual name for it? the solar system anyway 200 years in the future it's easy to see that the earthquakes and erosion alluded to in the naming of the scopuli are completely metaphorical both prologues perfectly capture the fear stubborn survivalism and ingenuity of julie mao as she manages to escape her captors and it's here that we get our first look into the leviathan that's waking the proto-molecule in a way that perfectly merges the terror and titillation that's reminiscent to the prologue for both Game of Thrones novel and show. But unlike the adaption of A Story of Fire and Ice to the small screen, the writers of The Expanse show never lose sight of their overarching plot. Sorry, George, I am a huge, huge, huge fan, but mistakes were made. While the book tosses us onto the Canterbury immediately, the show gives us a reason to care about Julie Bao by illustrating the systematic erosion caused by the morals and values that brought us to this point. Centuries of capitalism, colonialism, and racism have clearly made their impact and even evolved, which is explained in this speech that welcomes us to our first look at Series Station. In this speech, an angry belter is explained to us why he's so angry, and in, with his fury, fu- I tongue-tied myself. With his fury-filled words about the injustices faced by those who live and work on this station against the superpowers of Mars and Earth, and it's through these politics that permeate everything within this side, the society. And how surprising it is when the superpowers that have made water and air the carrot and the switch for the working class that is the belt. The struggles of the Belters are again illustrated in a series of expositional moments that are beautifully translated to the small screen and how director Terry McDonough and writers Mark Fergus and Hawk Osby crafted the scenes that followed Detective Josephus Miller and his partner, Lieutenant Havelock, a Belter and an Earther respectively. It's only because of the difference in their race, which we'll come to find in this sequence, evolution has kind of made Belters, Earthers, and Martians all a different race, that we are introduced to a different, introduced to the differences between these races. First, with an investigation of a murder at a brothel in which Lieutenant Havelock is introduced to the idea of the hand you never see. Um, we're told it's a belter term for what you never seem to see coming, an idea that Havelock doesn't seem to understand. The jab that Miller tosses out to him is ironic and that he's trying just as hard to be the face of those who hold his leash. The term, the hit you never see coming, is actually an old boxing term that had been adopted and adapted to Belter Patois. I'll have more on the language later, I promise. I seem to recall Ty Frank likening it to when people are trying to adopt a culture that we have only experienced it from a distance. And understanding that, it's no surprise that Detective Miller finds a source of solace in the identity of the cynical detective who had better days. He remembers those days, 
the days that broke him long broke him long again under the weight of the systematic oppression that he's fought against his entire life. It's this same system that has made him tenacious with that kind of tenacity that's rarely seen outside of the jaded, hopeless romantics who have discovered that they still have that one last spark of hope. Now, I don't know if it's an ode to Blade Runner or simply a science fiction imperative at this point, but The Expanse includes the noodle cart. Being a huge fan of noodles in any form, especially in the forms prevalent in Korean cuisine, I'm all for the inclusion of the noodle cart in everything. Noodles are the perfect food. But noodles aren't the reason this scene pops for its exposition as much as much to the dismay of my stomach. But it's how Detective Miller chooses the location to explain the various physical tells that belters have. Bone spurs, long limbs, tall tremors from growing up in low G, Detective Miller explains to Afalok in the show. And this is where I really need to give it to the casting department working on The Expanse. They did an incredible job of ensuring that those who, whom they cast physically resembled the races that they portray. Even with the extras that mill about on the edges of our attention across the screen, there is a plethora of the langy, lanky, languid, and wiry. These shoes these scenes shot in the deep corridors of Sirius Station and within the mass transit show that perfect casting, but also provides for an environment in which to add some of the more subtle expositional shots and sequences. As I said, there's a lot to unpack in this first look into this into series from the show, and much of it goes beyond the first book, but remains spoiler free. I'm going to try and like bullet point this. Um, on the transit system, the maps of series. Um, the maps showcase the, the big idea of spin gravity, which in the novels we learn is how artificial gravity is created on the asteroids like Ceres, Pallas, Eros. Um, in one image, we see what's basically a spin gravity diagram. The, it's an idea that we use. The idea is that we utilized ideas from a man named Gerard O'Neill, who in the mid to late 1970s, he wrote a book um, and he worked with NASA on an idea of centrifugal gravity or spin gravity that could be achieved through mining asteroids. Um, if you'd like to learn more on this, I suggest looking into the O'Neill Cylinder and Stanford Taurus, um, both of which are examples that we see in the Expanse show and is explained more in depth in Leviathan Wakes. Um, another thing about these scenes is the incense, um, most notably Captain Shadid's use of what's basically an essential oil diffuser. Um, it doesn't even look that different from the one that's sitting on my desk right now. Uh, the scene is tied well with Captain Shadid's simple gesture to the conversation on the subway about the air filters being cleaned. In space, the air is recycled, and the air filters aren't always the best. Sometimes things go missing and you're stuck with a dirty air filter. The smells are rarely pleasant, so the use of scents like diffusers and incense has remained popular. Another thing... Um, there are no laws on series, only cops. Yes, this is a statement and not a scene, but it's a statement that's repeated a lot in both versions of The Expanse, and readers may not need much of an explanation, but there is a lot to that statement. Especially since Miller's obsession with Julie pushes the bigger question to the side, the question he was supposed to be investigating before Shadid pulled him onto this kidnap job. We'll get into this. And here's the thing with that statement. Laws change with money. Who holds the power? Who pay, pays the bills? Keeping the air and water flowing. 
a Belcher police captain employed by an Earth-based security company, knows the game she plays well. It's a wall of corruption, depending on the hand that holds her leash. The show leaves a statement at this idea. Those with money make the laws as they see fit and as it profits them. The novels at this point. The novels leave it at that. But we're given a big, pack of ta- a big bag of Takis to snack on in the meantime. A bag of Takis, viewers of the show won't get to late till a later episode, but don't worry. I'll flash this back and remind you that it's in the first chapter for Detective Miller that we start learning that the local Grigas, or the local mafia, local gangs, are letting things slip. Things they would never allow to slip. And it's got the literary Detective Miller scratching his head with his partner. No, I'm not mad at this change of writing. As I started out saying about the sequence in this show, it's be- it's a beautiful and much-needed expo- exposition that the reader gets with the words of James S.A. Corey, Collective. In this episode, the di- directors and the writers play down Havelock, and it works considering that Jake Hernandez goes on to play Magnum P.I. in the reboot series that's now airing, but also because the dewy-eyed rookie is the perfect character in which to introduce us to this nuanced and not-too-distant future. In case you missed it, we're only 200 years in the future here, our great-great-great-grandchildren's future. When I think about my grandparents 200 years ago, it was Russia. There was hunger and conscription. The need to fight the system was just starting to be nurtured in our Volga German spirits. Okay, so I may empathize with the belt, the belters, you know. I have high expectations of my future. I may need to see if I can sneak a message to Jeff Bezos about getting my kid onto one of those rockets. Anyway, all daydreaming aside. The world bending, the world bending. We're not bending the world, we're building the world. The world building that happens when we're brought onto series station is a work of art. And what's only a 10-minute sequence, we're given what amounts to Belter politics and colonized solar system 101. And this honestly takes the better part of the first novel to reveal, and neither Daniel Abraham nor Ty Frank have a penchant for unnecessary purple prose. Every word is chosen for the mileage they can get out of it. And that's why the sequence in which they chose to film is important, as series shows us the stakes. Our introduction to the Canterbury gives us a solid picture into the day-to-day of the average Joe, or in this case, the average James. Enter the Canterbury, and by proxy, James Holden. But first I want to talk about the Canterbury, and how we're introduced to it, which isn't a visual at all, at least in the show. And admittedly, I hear this now when I've gone to reread the novels since the show's premiere. The Belter Patois, Black Key song, Tighten Up, performed by Justin Young. It's not our first foray into Belter Patois. The scenes on series introduced us to the language fully. Now, I love learning languages. At the moment, I'm studying Korean, um, and I've got a family heritage of regional dialogues, as so many of us do. And in communicating with my own family, it's been pointed out that we mix our languages a lot. My paternal side and I use a mix of Sicilian and English. My maternal side and I use a mix of German, Russian, and English. And as Californians, we add Spanglish to that as well. Um, Growing up in Fresno, California, one of my closest friends to this day is Hmong. And her mix of Hmong, Spanish, and English is one of the most melodic things I've ever heard. It's natural for us to mix languages like this. So it's never surprising to hear it, but it's 
oh, rarely done. And yet this isn't the first time that we've had linguistic mixing in science fiction. Now this opens up completely fictional languages, but I'm gonna keep it to uh, more futuristic dystopian science fiction. Uh, In the fallen Joss Whedon's epic and mostly unproblematic science fiction series, Firefly, we're introduced to a hybrid American-English-Chinese hodgepodge of a language, which was created as an ingenious way to get around the censors for cursing. Um, But it it seemed plausible under the pretense in which it was sold to us. The United States and China are the superpowers of the world at the time that we flee to space. Now, this may have been true for 2002, but the continuing years of George W. Bush, a Trump disaster, and a needless 20-year war, I would not consider the United States to be a superpower in any way, so I'd almost dare Joss to revisit the language. The Expanse, however, takes it to a historical level, and the roots are in the name of the language itself. It's a patois, or a loose culture and regional-driven language that isn't a standard language itself. There's a variety of patois spoken throughout the world and, in the Expanse's case, throughout the solar system. So it's really a bit of a given that when you toss people from all over the world into space to work together, they aren't going to be fluent in every spoken language on Earth. Rather, they'll do as so many immigrants have done before and create a hodgepodge of words that everyone's going to understand. Now, there are a lot of videos on YouTube that study and dig in deep to the belt of patois far better than I can. I highly suggest looking into them if you have an interest in the language. I just think it's amazingly done. It was well written in the novels and it translated beautifully onto the small screen thanks to the sheer talent of the actors who played the Belters. And this is a bit of a spoiler, but as you meet the Belters from the various station, listen carefully to the words that they choose and the accents they have. Some Belters sound alike, some vary. It really all comes down to where they're from. Are they rock hoppers? Are they from Palace? Are they from Ceres? And some, like Detective Miller, and at times, Naomi Nagata, will hide it, or at the very least, tone it down while in mixed company. I remember hearing somewhere that the Ceres Belter actors would get together, as with the rock hoppers, the Eros, and Palace Station Belter actors, and practice their accents, their lines, and even the way they gesticulated to give a sense of culture to each of the unique, unique ways the Belters lived. But back to the Canterbury and our average James. I don't know if the Canterbury is named after the murdered Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Beckett, but here we have a cathedral that went from simply being a cathedral to what would become a UNESCO World Heritage Site because an Archbishop was murdered there and then Geoffrey Chaucer wrote the book, The Canterbury Tales, which told the stories of the various pilgrims that would come to the shrine of Thomas Beckett. Thomas Beckett was canonized for standing against Henry I over the Constitutions of Clarendon. Any one of these could be the reasons why the Canterbury was named as such, I don't know, but any fits, any of the context fits as a matter of foreshadowing, and it would certainly explain Mr. James Holden. James Holden is completely average, free-floating, underwhelming, boomer stereotype of an underachieving Gen Xer. He is going out of his way to do as little as he can above the bare minimum. In one particular line of the show, he refers to himself as just another pencil pusher. The novels leave us with a similar impression that Stephen Strait brings directly to the role. My favorite thing about what the show gets right from the novels 
in the scenes with Detective Miller and our transition to James Holden is that the scenes play out before our eyes as they unfold upon the page. We're introduced to their cha- these characters and their locations as if we're seeing it from their perspective. And for all the subtle intrigue and intense lore unpacking the sequences with Detective Miller and the sequences in our introduction to the Canterbury are as straightforward as James Holden considers his lackadaisical self to be. And despite, of the, evo- despite the evolution of James Holden throughout the series, this is not in fact a lie or a pretense that he's putting on. As we'll learn later on, minor spoiler alert, Holden is our White Knight character, but he needs a cause and the Canterbury is a means to an end so he can stay away from causes. He genuinely enjoys being on the Canterbury. It's his home and probably the only job he can get, but more on this later. I've been saying that a lot. Trust me. The Canterbury and her crew are dropped on us all at once and in their full glory with quick succession and visuals, the visuals are simply perfection. The following are the quotes from the first novel, Leviathan Wakes. Holden's perspective of Naomi Nagata and our introduction to her. Chief Naomi Nagata towered over him. She stood almost two full meters tall, her mop of curly hair tied back into a black ponytail her expression halfway between amusement and annoyance. She had the belter habit of shrugging with her hands instead of her shoulders. The casting of Dominique Tipper in the role of Naomi Nagata is spot on. I'm absolutely floored by her performance every time she's on the screen. And I can't read the novels now without her playing Naomi in my head. Now, this is Holden's perspective of Amos Burton. And again, our introduction to the character. Hey boss. Amos Burton, Naomi's earthborn assistant, yelled from across the bay. He waved one meaty arm in their general direction. He meant Naomi. Amos might be on Captain McDowell's ship. Holden might be the executive officer. But in Amos Burton's world, only Naomi was boss. In the novels, it's pretty clearly stated that Amos is a lumberjack of a man. He's built like a brick shithouse and just as tall. He's also got this old space trucker vibe to him that I couldn't shake before I saw Wes Chatham's performance as Amos. And no offense, Wes, I always thought him be- of him being the generic white dude actor with a punchable face and the acting chops of any testosterone-driven American machismo tough guy that we see all too often cast in these roles. Here's looking at you, Jane Cobb. But I was so wrong. I was so incredibly wrong. Wes Chatham is absolutely hands down incredible as Amos Burton and transitions the character flawlessly to the small screen. He seems to have a true understanding of the character and all of his incredible subtleties. Wes Chatham is Amos Burton, except he probably won't beat you up or kill you. He might hug you. I don't know. Wes Chatham is a breath of fresh air, and I'd like to applaud him because he seems to be an ex- standing example of what cisgendered white man should be for his family, his community, and himself most importantly. I do hate the term cis, but it translates to a term that everyone understands. We are also introduced to Alex Kamal, a Martian pilot. Now before I get into the character and end in the show, I will only be referring to the character. The character of Alex Kamal is completely and entirely unproblematic. How he is portrayed 
by the actor Cass Anvar is unproblematic. It is the actor that is the issue. And I'm not going to allow the allegations of, against Cass Anvar to be the elephant in the room. Cass Anvar was accused of sexual misconduct, which I won't go into here, but you can see the accusations in the Reddit thread posted with a bunch of other links in the episode information. Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank were quick to hand the allegations and information over to the studio responsible for the expanse, Alcon, and Cass Anvar was immediately fired. Massive spoiler alert! Massive, massive, massive spoiler alert! He dies like an afterthought. I don't know how this is going to play out in the novels, but I imagine that Alex Kamal gets the end he actually deserves on the page since Cass Anvar robbed him of that on the small screen. That said, one of my favorite character descriptions in Leviathan Wakes comes from chapter three, a Holden chapter in which we learn that Alex's accent and noise are average James. The old West affection common from everybody, common to everybody from the Mariner Valley annoyed Hal Holden. There hadn't been a cowboy on earth in a hundred years, and Mars didn't have a blade of grass that wasn't under a dome or a horse that wasn't in a zoo. Mariner Valley had been settled by East Indians, Chinese, and a small contingent of Texans. Apparently, the draw was viral. They all had it now. The Texas draw isn't the only thing that's made its way into space with us. Either... Uh, both the show points out, and it's slightly touched upon within the novels, but for those born on Earth, sometimes the need to feel the earth is a psychological pull that some can't get away from. In the novel, James Holden is introduced to us as the executive officer of the Canterbury. In the show, we're introduced to him as the second officer, and the executive officer is a man who has been in space a bit too long. He yearns to dig his fingers into the brown, rich soil of our planet, and the metal bulkheads that surround him have triggered a form of claustrophobia that's unique to space travel for those born down a gravity well or down, a planet's, down on the planet's surface. And we see how this affects the executive officer that James Holden comes to replace. But he's only acting EXO. He's quite clear about that. We're also introduced to a plethora of other interesting characters aboard the Canterbury, Captain McDowell and his mysterious cat collection. There's Shed Garvey, the medic and apparent illicit substances dealer. Our intrepid miner who will always take a belter built prosthetic over Earth Science Page, and the could be long term love interest of Holden Ade. Each of these characters are played incredibly well and make for a dynamic, believable blue collar ice hauler crew that's working for pure and clean. Immediately, the Canterbury is rubbed into our plot. It is, as Thomas Beckett was, the spark that will smolder before launching another hundred years war. Or will it be the spark that could ignite the buildup of old beliefs, ideologies, and practices that have created a suffocating layer of oppression as dangerous to society in general as unchecked old growth in the forests of the West Coast? It starts with a distress signal from a freighter called the Scopuli. Now, it's an old maritime tradition to always answer a distress signal. Space is the same way. You don't want to be left adrift, so it's a form of karma. And there's a risk to it, just as there's a risk on the high seas, and it shares the same name. Pirates. Piracy is the same valuable black market, outlaw profession 200 years in the future that it was 200 years in the past and even today. 
And not to mention, once you've heard Veltrepetois, you know they have their own unique dialect as well. So there really shouldn't be too much surprise when there's a debate among the crew on what to do about the distress signal considering their location and a full load of ice they're now carrying. They make what I consider to be the smart decision considering that if they don't, they're, they're screwing a lot of people, waiting on water and ice that they're carrying that will in turn be left without. But Ade has a conscience and she speaks that conscience to no avail. But remember, she's the girlfriend of our average James, the white knight without a cause. And while our boy Holden is making the most obvious decision Holden can make, he's adding a bit of charcoal from the head of a good old fashioned matchstick to his coffee. As a coffee enthusiast, I was puzzled by this. It's explained in the first moments of episode two, so I won't be redundant here. Instead, I'm going to jump into our first break from the novels with the introduction of Shorey Agshaladu's character, Christian Avasarala. Now, we're not introduced to Christian Avasarala in the first book at all. In fact, it isn't until the second novel, Caliban's War, that we're introduced to her. Her addition to the first series was a needed look into Earth's politics, as we're being introduced to Mars in the Belt in this first season. So it's only fair that Earth gets some representation, and Avasarala is obviously a massive powerhouse of a character, even though her introduction is as the grandmother she prides herself on being. This leads me to a quick tangent. In the novels and in the show, we're first shown that Christian Avasarala has been both a strong, loving mother and grandmother without having to sacrifice her career. Good job, guys. I'm not mad at the changes made to bring us Avasarola earlier. I'll always side with more of her and how Mark Fergus and Hawk Osby wrote her, wrote our visual introduction with these two very sides of her was simply incredible. I've been saying that a lot too. Um, now I mentioned the two different sides to her because we get a taste of Avasarola's two roles in life and probably one of my favorite bits of foreshadowing in the series. Spoiler alert, sort of. The interrogation at the UN black site is not a scene to forget, even if it doesn't play out until seasons five and six, just as Miller's investigation to the local Greek is disappearing and in the books, the missing armor. And like Miller's scenes in the show until this point, Christian's scene gives us a lot to unpack. We learn that belters don't do well down gravity wells. Uh, the OPA has gotten their hands on Martian stealth technology. And for those of us who have seen the show, it's truly impressive to look back and see how many pieces of the puzzle Christian has. And a moment to just gush over Shere Agshaladu's role, in the, uh, over her role as Avasarala. There is simply no actress I can see that would have been able to fill her heels. And Shere not only fills those heels, but makes Earth quake with every step in awe of what truly is an iconic role. Another actor that is phenomenal in the, the role is Thomas Jane is Joe Miller. And I bring this up here because there are two tying that guy episodes, one on season one, episode one, and another in which the guys are talking to Thomas Jane about playing Miller and many of these scenes. I don't want to get too far into everything with the air filters because honestly, it's better to hear their stories and opinions and takes on the writing of these scenes and Thomas Jane's decisions and how to play them out. The man knows his craft and just honestly seems like someone I'd like to smoke a bowl and have a bottle of wine with, rather than be starstruck by. Just wax poetic on all things geek. Sounds like fun, but moving on. Um, as a personal veneer, I'm 
the daughter of a pilot, the granddaughter of a pilot, pilots that were that were and are Air Force through and through. My brother went in. I was supposed to go in, but got pissed off that they had a quota on female recruits at the time. That was some bullshit. So I went Army, like my maternal grandfather. We'll not talk about him being Army Air Force, which would become the Air Force after World War II, because that's just a technicality, right? My point is, I love aviation. I grew up in and around airplanes, airports, pilot dives. Ask me who my favorite aviator in history is. My answer is Poncho Barnes, the granddaughter of the Air Force. That is a cool bit of history. If you look up Thaddeus Barnes, a Civil War fame. Anyway, I point out aviation because the maneuvers they're about to pull work. The flip and burn. And this is the moment I was sold on this show and would later go on to read the books. The flip and burn. The idea of the maneuver is that you turn the main thrusters of the engine off. Then you ignite the smaller thrusters to turn the ship in the direction you want to go. And then you ignite the big bad boy thrusters again and off you go. Now, this isn't a theoretical move, but the issue is the sheer amount of G-forces on those for those on the ship would be experiencing that amount of g-force could kill you easily but they thought of that enter the juice the juice is made in a variety of ways and is available in a variety of qualities it's a cocktail drugs meant to keep you awake make sure you don't stroke out um, it reinforces the cardiovascular system and sometimes if it's too cheap it's just a lot of painkillers <coughs> so you forget to care that you're being crushed and as always, the higher quality of juice, the fewer side effects. The lower quality, the worse you'll feel when you come down from it. And those side effects vary from feeling very hungover to having migraines to a wide variety of brain fog and gastrointestinal issues. The juice is administered quickly through what they call crash couches. These chairs insert a needle that pumps the juice directly into your system so that you immediately respond to it. There's probably been a study on this that I haven't found yet. If you guys know of it, please share. Another shift that we have from the books to the small screen is the character of Octavia Muss. This is our first look at something this show does really well. It merges characters. To take away from some of the bulk of the novel, they're able to merge characters in a way that we don't miss out on the characters that have been removed. Now, Miller's ex-wife wasn't so much of a character but a ghost he's running away from in the novels for the reader that's the shift in miller when his ex-wife candace stops being his ghost and julie mel starts filling in that role for the viewer however we see that shift visually in miller during the air filter incident in the novel leviathan wakes octavia must becomes miller's new partner after havelock is reassigned her reassignment to be miller's partner is a punishment and it's through her that Miller finds he's an old wash-up. And it's a realization we see Miller have in the show through Thomas Jane's performance and his interactions with his ex-wife, Octavia Muss. Athena Carcanus is the actor who plays Octavia Candace Muss. And she marries those characters so perfectly in her performance. We have the eye of care and judgment that haunts Miller, and we also have the cool professionalism and natural candor of two cops who have learned how to work together despite their past. She and Thomas Jane had that charisma of two people once in love that made me truly in love the scenes with them. The scenes and pages that follow are true to the novels, 
and we are left with our core crew and what amounts to a dinghy in space with no idea what Ade was about to tell James Holden. We'll never know. And that's the episode. Thank you for joining me into this first delve in my expanse geekdom. If you have, if you like what you've heard, please subscribe, follow me, you know. I've provided comments, I've provided links in the comments below about some of the things I've talked about, where to buy the books, and where to watch the show. I've also included a link to my first sponsor. Yay! Jupiter Games is a fantastically family-owned store in the heart of Johnson City, New York's Johnson City, New York's historic district. You can find all kinds of games there, as well as buy or sell your Magic Card, Magic the Gathering cards. For online orders, I'll leave the information in the comments below as well. Thank you for listening, if only it's because I asked you to. I appreciate it. See you, Firehawks.